start this new season of four at the back, come with us back to a time before the Russian billionaire turned Chelsea into one of the superpowers of the world game. You go back then, though, and there was still actually quite a lot to like about Chelsea, or more to like about them, and a lot of success that went on with that side. If we go back to the late 1990s, they really started to lay down the kind of markers that made them the sort of club that someone like Roman Abramovich would be quite interested in buying. Uh, we're going to look at that side today, mainly through the lens of the Gianluca Vialli side that uh, really put Chelsea on the map, took them up to third in the league one season and won a plethora of trophies in that late 90s period. We've got Neil and Maz with us tonight. Before we get into that, uh, Chelsea always a pretty big side, but it's fair to say that despite being free spending through most of the Ken Bates era, things really start to turn around in the mid-1990s when they start to make some quite high-profile managerial appointments. First, Glenn Hoddle, and then after that, the promotion when Hoddle goes to England, of uh, Rude Hullett, who'd sensationally signed, he becomes the player manager. And from Chelsea being also Rands, who will make eye-catching signings of Premier League players, uh, but don't really achieve a tremendous amount, all of a sudden Chelsea are on the map and it really reorients the top of the Premier League. So what are your first memories, I suppose, of that Hoddle into Hullett kind of era before we move on to Viali? Well, first of all, I, I just need to address, uh, you know, you're speaking to an Arsenal and a Spurs fan here. So calling <laughs> Chelsea a, a, a big club and uh, a, a likeable club is... Oh, well, yeah, OK. Um, <laughs> I, will, yeah, I will give you that. It's worth adding. You've got a point that in at this point that we're talking about now, when we just start in this... Although Chelsea were a big club in the national scheme of things, there's no comparison between Chelsea and Arsenal, certainly, and probably between Chelsea and Tottenham, too. Chelsea were comfortably third, I would have said. Yeah, yeah. Chelsea were were well supported, but they they were almost yo-yoing a bit in in the years coming up to this, weren't they? You know, through the 80s, as Neil and I were growing up, you know, they weren't necessarily a team that you would always see there. You know, they were going through some bad years for them, but yeah, they... They were certainly very well supported in in London, in South London. Very well supported. I think what I remember most is uh, is uh, in the early days is that Commodore kit. I remember mm. a, a friend at school owning that kit and being a, a tentative Chelsea fan. And within a year, he'd swapped it for the the Red Liverpool Candy kit, which I think probably says everything about how Chelsea were regarded in the uh, the early 1990s, at least. But I think the the Hoddle point was really important. Um, he'd only just finished playing and he'd had a very creditable spell as Swindon player manager and he'd got Swindon up into the Premier League. And, you know, and he'd used that much as I guess you can say, you know, that years later, Lampard went from Derby to Chelsea. Like Hoddle similarly kind of used a good spell in the second tier to get himself a big job at Chelsea. And, and I think, you know, had everything not gone the way it did with Venables in England, the idea was supposed to be that Hoddle was going to be there for the long term. Very young manager, progressive ideas, makes some eye-catching signings, chief among them, you know, Rud Hullet, who you mentioned, a 30-something Rud Hullet. But nevertheless, if you watch any of the highlights of Rud Hullet that season, like, I mean, boy, oh boy, once they moved him out of centre-half and put him back in midfield, he could still play. And he got the he gets the England job, and it, I guess it seems like the obvious solution to to give the manager a role to Hullet. And obviously, that kind of level of star power in the manager. I mean, bearing in mind that in the 
the early 90s we talked about a few seasons ago I mean next to Maradona Hullet was the best footballer in the world so you know he commanded that kind of box office appeal which meant that somebody like Gianluca Viali would leave Italy and and comes to Premier League and um, it, he's obviously followed by many more after that so um, it all goes a bit sour with 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 Hullet in the end which would be something which you know would recur with Newcastle um, and again Ken Bates goes to the well of of appointing the aging star um, as the player manager and you know that's that's a trope that you see throughout the 80s and 90s actually I mean you can go back to Dalgalish at Liverpool you know as another prime example of that like you know you're a brilliant footballer therefore you'll probably be a good manager was the kind of the the way people tended to think it's probably worth also saying that that Chelsea had a a big cash injection comparatively for the time way before Abramovich through the uh you know the Matthew Harding bizarre rivalry with Ken Bates um we haven't got enough time in this podcast to unpick that one but um he obviously contributed a huge amount of funding to the club and um that enabled them to start to make these waves and as you say become these you know, Aravistes in the uh, in the top six. And, um, you know, and just as with Blackburn a couple of years earlier on, I, I think you're right in that London clubs certainly didn't find uh, Chelsea attractive. But in the general sense of anyone but United and Arsenal, it was always slightly exciting when a Chelsea or a Newcastle or a Blackburn spent some money and put themselves in contention. So I can certainly see that argument. Yeah, there was I mean, certainly... it's the players that they bought, wasn't it? You know, the spending money with Blackburn did it. They bought horrible bloody players. They? <laughs> <laughs> but they won the league. I mean, they, they bought they bought the right players. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> you know, horrible hor- horrible fuckers, the lot of them. But yeah, I mean, they they bought sexy footballers, didn't they? They were bringing in these guys that we would see uh, on on Gazetta, you know, on a Saturday morning on a. We, we were being treated to that in the early 90s and suddenly these players are coming are coming across and it, it's Chelsea who are bringing them in. So, yeah, in terms of that, there there was a lot of excitement there. You know, na- names like Hullet and Viali were just like an era where the British League, you know, we've discussed this on, on this podcast many, many a time, where that early 90s where we didn't have many uh, foreign players and, you know, those foreign players were usually Scandinavian. So anything out of the ordinary, any anyone that wasn't Northern European was was really exotic at that point and very exciting. When Hullet signed for Chelsea, he only had a couple of teammates that weren't from the British Isles, really. And all of a sudden, within 18 months or so of him becoming the manager, Chelsea were this multicultural, cosmopolitan feeling team and they suddenly did play much better football. So you can add this dimension where I'm just going to run through actually Kareen in goal, Erland Johnson, Mark Steen, a South African striker, and Dan Petrescu are the only non British and Irish players in 95 96 when Hullet signs. Within a year or two of that, they're obviously starting to fly, but you also look at their league positions and how it matches. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about this Chelsea team if they'd continue to finish in 11th, 14th. 11th, 14th, 11th, 11th, that's the run through the early 90s. And then after, you know, Hullet comes in and, the, and this investment starts to take effect, 6th, 4th, 3rd, 5th. And yeah, I knew fans of Chelsea miles away from London. And you didn't see that in the early 90s. 
No, certainly not. And we've seen it a few times now, haven't we, that, that when you get a new power in football or a returning power in football, it is exciting because ultimately, you know, the old world order, if you like, of Liverpool and United and, and company, it obviously, you know, you don't want to end up in a situation where you are like La Liga with, you know, Madrid winning 30-something titles and Barcelona winning 30-something titles and a couple of the clubs have like won a couple over that span. Celtic and Rangers probably that'd be even more pronounced. So it is exciting when a, a new team comes and challenges and particularly when they do it by by buying players of the calibre of Champagne Zola, who, as Matt says, those of us watch Gazetta, saw as a, a, a wonderful number 10 playing for Palmer. I believe it was Ancelotti who fell out with because Ancelotti's yeah. first brand of football was very utilitarian and very... I guess, influenced by Saki, who was his manager at Milan. And so Zola ends up falling out with, with Ancelotti and he's available basically for a cut price fee. And I saw it. The, uh, the Zola soccer box with Gary Neville is really well worth the watch if you've not seen it. And in that, Neville recounts, um, you know, talking to some of the Chelsea players at the time. And they were saying, oh, you know, when he signed, we were thinking, oh, you know, oh, John Spencer is such a great season. Why do we need this guy? <laughs> and then they saw him play. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that kind of says everything. He was a little it? player, to be fair to him, John Spencer. But yeah, it, it's a different league, isn't it? That's um, the, why do we need to sign Zidane when we have Tim Sherwood all over again, isn't it? And it does, it, but it does speak a little bit to the parochialism of of English football at that time. That, that you know, that Chelsea's players didn't really know who this guy was until they saw him train, and then. Everybody got very excited because not only was Zola instantly one of the best players in the league, but he did it in such style and with a smile on his face. And there aren't many Chelsea players down the years that you would say all fans embraced. If you yeah, think about those got players, very many likable players. Yeah, uh, you think about that's sort of like Hazard, wonderful player, but what a div and. Zola was Zola was someone that everybody embraced, and you know he won every goal of the month contest. He, you know, he scored absolutely cracking goals all the time. Assists, range of passing, made everyone around him better, and was absolutely worshipped by his own crowd. He must go down as one of the best value signings in the entire history of the Premier League. Yeah, so he comes in, and I think this is really important to this story as well. The timing of it. Uh, not only falling out with Ancelotti and out of favour and in a position that in Italian football was broadly out of favour, that, that kind of number 10, um, but also kind of sort of in disgrace after Euro 96. You know, he, I think he misses a penalty in a really important moment and Italy go out in the, the group stage. So, yeah, he's coming in at, at a cut price thing. He's not particularly well loved in his homeland and he comes over here. And becomes, as you say, probably the most popular Chelsea player in living memory. Uh, you, you probably have to go back to the 60s and early 70s to find people who, who compare for popularity. But it's that timing of this happening right after Euro 96, which is obviously when Glenn Hoddle takes over from Terry Venables. He goes, uh, Rude Hullet comes in, and this is the first spate of real star power kind of arriving right on the back of seeing all these teams in England, you know, people going and watching international football at a level that they hadn't really been able to do it for a long time. 
So uh, Gianluca Vialli, Roberto Di Matteo, Frank LeBeuf all arrive before the season kicks off. And then Zola joins them in something like the, the November. And there's other buys that come in as well, but they are the real marquee signings for the summer. It comes to about 10, 11 million quid all in all. So it's a serious outlay for the time. But all of a sudden, you've gone from a team that's made up of Jody Morris, Frank Sinclair, David Lee, and now they've got some of the biggest names in European football in their team. Uh, it's, it's a real night and day. It's almost like an overnight switch. We can look then at how they do. So in that first season under Hullet, they improve about five places. So they've gone from being a mid-table team to a, to a top of the mid-table team, but they also win the FA Cup. And it's a game we've spoken about on previous episode because it's that Middlesbrough team that they beat, if you remember. And uh, Roberto Di Matteo scores uh, probably the fastest FA Cup final goal. Uh, I'm guessing that this is one of the few times where Chelsea were playing a team that had the same sort of cosmopolitan DNA and maybe people were cheering more for Middlesbrough. Uh, that's probably quite a rare thing for them at, the, at this moment. But uh, obviously the story of Middlesbrough potentially losing both finals and going down was all a bit much. Um, any kind of memories of that game other than Di Matteo's goal? It, it was over pretty quickly, wasn't it? Like that, I mean, what a goal. One of the best goals ever to win a, an FA Cup final for an absolute certainty. And, and I think uh, it, it was a marker, wasn't it? I mean, I'm trying to think what Chelsea's most recent trophy before that would have been and I want to say it's something really weird like the Zenith Data Systems Cup or something in like the really early 90s or something ridiculous like that but absolutely spot on it's the the Zenith Data Systems Cup or the full members cup to give it its official name in 1990. That's not a real trophy I'm not having that. (laughs) (laughs) The only reason I remember it you know is because you only ever saw the highlights on Satan Gravesy. And I do, I do kind of quite clearly remember that. Yeah. So the first big trophy and even longer, you know, um, since, the you know since the Cup Winners' Cup. Yeah. So what, when was that? Like? Like, yeah. So a long time, you know, since the the heyday of that, you know, that was like Ron Harris team or something, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So really long time since they'd, since they'd won a trophy of, of, of that kind of level. And um, it was a marker. It was saying that they were more than just upstarts, you know. And if you think about Newcastle, they couldn't couldn't turn their entertaining and flamboyant style into a trophy. But Chelsea did, uh, and quite quickly. And I think, you know, that sets them up for this whole Hullet, Viali, um, Ranieri period where they're consistently a top five or top six team and consistently challenging in cup competitions and winning cup competitions which kind of leads them into the Abramovich and Mourinho era, where, of course, they become, you know, an absolute juggernaut. So it's really important, these kind of pre-eras to to bigger success. And this first trophy is huge in that. Yeah, it's hugely important. I mean, you know, does Abramovich even invest in that team if it hasn't created that buzz? You know, Chelsea has things going for it. You know, being a London club helps. You know, you can attract players to London. You know, attracting players to Newcastle, not quite so. You, you, you've got to try and trick trick them in. You know, these poor South Americans like Esprit and Janinho who've never heard of what, <laughs> what, the, what the North East is before. Whereas, you know, Chelsea's glam, you know, it, it, it's a glam area. It's it, even by London standards. They, they had that going for them and, you know, they could attract the, these rock star players. Guys like Hullet, guys like Viali. And it... it 
it make it makes a big difference. It, it it really does. But yeah, you know, without this phase for Chelsea, I, I don't think there even is an Abramovich phase. He might have bought Spurs instead. I mean, yeah, Sugar was looking to sell for me enough, so <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting thought. And uh, Abramovich is Jewish as well, so yeah, it would it would have fit. Oh well. <laughs> so we come to the following season, and well, I mean, it's quite an interesting one because. The sheer number of goals in the side as much as anything you have. Mark Hughes is still there and he's still actually a very good striker at this point, even though he's left Man United. I won't say Ferguson moved him on too early, but he moved him on when there was still plenty of gas in the tank. So they've still got Hughes scoring a lot, but now they've got Zola who's starting to get up to speed and he's scoring a lot this season. Viali's still got plenty in the tank and he's scoring. Uh, So Chelsea are flying really quite late into the season. I think they might even be up as high as about second in the league. And then... Around the, was it January, February kind of time? There's this weird switch with, with them flying and all of a sudden Hullet's out. He's not manager anymore. And as you say, they make the switch and they bring Viali in. Uh, before we start to look at some of the players who joined the season and really kind of amplified that, as I say, the sense of Chelsea as a cosmopolitan side, bringing some of those marquee players that you're talking about. Uh, what's the first kind of recollection of that handover period from, from Hullet to Viali and the... The, just the shock, I guess, if you of uh, a, a manager moving on when he's doing so well. It was hugely controversial, wasn't it? And and I I still don't know if to this day like anybody knows the full story because there's such such conflicting accounts of it. Um, but as as near as I can remember, it was like over contract language or something like that. And Hullet seemed to think that he that it wasn't a problem and they'd get something agreed, and then Bates fired him. It's something like that. Yeah, my because is it because he wasn't allowed the Twitch channel out of Chelsea or something? <laughs> very very niche uh, joke there. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so I the way I read it recently, it was something on the lines of he was very casual about it, and they really wanted to get him signed up. And the longer it dragged on, went towards the end of his contract, they eventually just lost patience and said, "Well, I can't. We can't take the risk of this not." happening uh it's it's a weird situation really uh, ken bates was renowned for being a pretty trigger happy manager actually yeah, so it's very it's, on it's earlier very on brand for bates isn't it yeah uh, it, you know like even though he's kind of trying to cultivate a sort of a bit of an image of, of you know cuddly ken bates versus corporate matthew harding at this point in time like he um yeah he was still very ruthless and so i can absolutely see that and actually like We've seen that kind of weird contract thing play out with other managers, actually, you know, in recent times. So, yeah, it it does happen sometimes. And maybe maybe there was a sense as well in which maybe Hullet wasn't worth the hassle, you know, that that they had another face of the team that they could try and repeat the trick with in in Viali. And um, and it worked. So, yeah, I I don't know if you could really um, say they made the wrong call in that sense. And the side is starting to evolve as well. Uh, there's a new goalkeeper in who was one of the stars of the era. Uh, Ed De Hoy comes in from Feyenoord. Uh, apologies, I know that's not good Dutch pronunciation, but uh, Dutch names are notoriously tri- tricky for us English speakers. Uh, I think probably a couple of more, the ones that stand out just as much is Graham Lasso coming from Blackburn, that 
heralded a real changing of the guard at the top of the Premier League because I think Lasso had moved from Chelsea to Blackburn in the first place when they were on the rise. So to come home for £5 million sort of showed how the axis was turning. And then the other one that really stands out for me is the probably one of the best buys of the last was they picked up Gus Poyet on a free from Zaragoza. And um, Zaragoza, I should say. And uh, yeah, he just forms this wonderful partnership with Zola. I mean, I'd lost track of the number of times you'd see a goal where Zola dropped deep, play a ball through for Poyet running on beyond the defensive line. Wonderful. And uh, Tori Andre Flo for not much more than three as well. He'd gone to score quite a few goals. So again, this side that was all Englishmen apart from the goalkeeper and one or two other players, all of a sudden now is multinational. How far are we from from the uh, the infamous full 11 with no English player? I think we're still a way off that, to be honest. Yeah, um, that's quite a way off. Yeah. That was under Viali, though, wasn't it? Could be. I know that when you get to the start of the 98-99 season, then the opening day, they play 11 internationals at Chelsea for the first time ever. But they include England internationals like Dennis Wise. Uh, so I think it, there's probably still a way to go before we get to that. But um, yeah, maybe 2000 or so, I would guess. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like there are still some, you know, some key homegrown players in there, aren't they? Like Dennis Wise is still the heartbeat of the side. Steve Clark is is still an important leader and, and, and part of the defence. I guess Dubry never fulfilled his potential, but, you know, he was still around so as you've already said. So, you know, there were Sir Jody Morris. So there were certainly, you know, still homegrown players that were important there in amidst the uh, the the marquee buys we've been talking about. But I guess the, mo- the thing you'd say is that what was distinctive about Chelsea in particular is they had a very cultured defence, didn't they? I mean, LeBeuf, ball-playing, sweeper, you know, Babiaro, very attacking fullback, Petrescu, attacking fullback, um, you know, Poi, as you say, bombing on from midfield. Um, so they were, yeah, they were very, they were very entertaining to watch. You know, if you actually, if you, if you watch their games with Arsenal in particular, there were some real thrillers in this play against Arsenal, I think, with, you know, Bergkamp and, and yeah, Wright. Bergkamp. And, Burkamp and Zola one up in each other. Yeah. Trying to. Absolutely. Uh, it was 99, by the way, the, uh, the first. Uh, yeah, Box Day. 1999. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of uh, players that we could miss out in all this as we move through, but it's worth noting that there were still big parts of this side. So Frank Sinclair, a bit of a cult hero at Chelsea until uh, he moves for a couple of million quid, I think, when Leicester finally go to buy him. Uh, even someone like Eddie Newton, who'd come through with such fanfare in 92, 93. Uh, even he's still around, but still making quite a lot of appearances too. So it's not like all of a sudden everything's happened at the flick of a switch, but the the star power is going up and up. And yeah, it's just going to accelerate really as, uh, as the seasons go on. So 97, 98, uh, Chelsea uh, win another cup with this new lineup. They win the League Cup. And uh, they also win the Cup Winners' Cup. And I think they finished third, uh, sorry, finished fourth, rather. So sixth to fourth and two trophies. I mean, from 11th and 14th, pretty much one or the other every year for five or six years. Now we've had three trophies in two years and they're finishing in the top four of the league. 
Uh, it's quite some turnaround. How do they do after Viali? Let me just kind of quickly check that. So Viali comes in in the February and yeah, they smashed Palace 6-2 and there's a fairly big win over Liverpool. So it seems like they settled down quite quickly to the, the new way of doing things. And then we're into 98-99 coming back from the World Cup. Yeah, it's interesting. Like looking at that that run of games in February before Hulitzak, actually, I mean, you might say results play a bit of a part because you know they lose every game in February in the league and lose one nil to Villa uh, in I guess what was probably Hullet's last game. So not exactly on a great run of form while he's having this contract wrangle. So yeah, might, have, might results might have been an underrated part of that. I think Hullet's last game is the 2-0 to Arsenal. Stephen Hughes scores twice, if this state is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. Yeah, so February doesn't go very well for them. But then, you know, as you say, the Palace game is where it, it, it clicks. And then after that, you know, they finish the season very strongly. You know, Spurs, Wednesday, Liverpool, uh, all good wins. And then Bolton on the last day of the season as well. So, yeah, they secure fourth. And obviously two cup wins as well. I guess the, the parallel is probably with, you know, the Hule Liverpool side that would follow three, four years later in the sense that, you know, they were a very, very good cup team. Mm. I think the one difference between the two is that Chelsea rack up three games where they score six goals this season. Uh, and I think that may also add to the sense that of why people would like them outside of that those London rivalries and you got more neutral support in them, but also why people would sometimes get a bit carried away with with Chelsea and it would there were a number of false dawns through this era of it and it's you know when Mourinho finally comes in and all the money arrives it took success and sustained success before people actually really bought into the the fact that they were for real this time. Yeah, they're yeah. starting to gather glory supporters, but you know maybe not on the level they would. <laughs> Um, once the middle of the 2000s kicks in. But yeah, they're certainly starting to gather them. You started to see more of the shirts, you know, certainly in the south of England you did, you know. Just yeah. in the 90s, it was all United and Liverpool, even in the south of England. And then, um, you know, you start to see the uh, start to see the old Chelsea shirt pop up. I'm guessing the 6-1 at White Hart Lane must be one of the worst memories of that season. Oh, the late 90s was an absolute wasteland. Uh, Is that the gross season? For a Tottenham fan. Uh, if it's, yeah, so if it's 97, 98, yeah. Then, then yeah, that's, if it's after, if it's after Christmas, then yeah, it's gross. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. 6th of December. That might have been Francis's, one of Francis's last games. One of the games that got him the sack. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of, it feels, feels like that kind of, tipping point but yeah I mean either way that season was a you know we nearly went down it was a terrible season for us so I always felt Flo was underappreciated yeah a really good player um him and Mikel Forcell you know two Scandinavian players who were very similar in, in, in a way and scored a lot of goals but and I guess the thing was is that they were playing alongside you know Zola who got all the all the headlines and um you know, and obviously their boss was one of the greatest strikers of the 90s. So, yeah, but but certainly they were, you know, really, really good young players. And I guess it was a bit of a sort of purple patch for Norwegian footballers because Solskjaer was coming through at United at the same time as well. Yeah, yeah, no, Flo was a very, very good player. Very good player. 
good. But how, how long was he there for? I, I can't even remember what happened to him in the end and, and stuff like that. Where did he move on to? Did he see quite a long time there, didn't he? He was still there, sort of at the end of the Ranieri, and maybe even at the beginning of the Mourinho, I think. Yeah, you know, I, no, I actually looked I, at this and thought, was Flo already there at that point? It, it, it seemed a little bit too early, but uh, yeah. No, he, I, know he, I know he goes to Rangers uh, at one point, and I don't think he does particularly well up there. I wonder if that maybe coincides with the Martin O'Neill era in Scotland, because otherwise you'd think doing going to Rangers, you'd almost guarantee titles, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it could be. And yeah, now four cell as well, you know, he came through and uh, Yeah, so he goes to Rangers for 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 Bolton in the end, didn't he? Four cell. So Rangers then Sunderland, then Siena, and then back to Norway. It's mm. only three years. It's weird, it feels longer. Kind of Yeah, November two thousand he went to Rangers. There you go. It, it kind of faded into obscurity, didn't it, really after that? Mm. He... So Zola wins them the Cup Winners Cup. 1-0 over Stuttgart. Then the World Cup happens in 98 and Chelsea go back to the well making big signings. Brian Laudrup comes in on a free. Gigi Casiraghi comes in. Obviously gone to the World Cup with Italy. Albert Ferrer from Spain. Uh, was he with Madrid or Barca? I can't remember. Say Barca guy, I think. Yeah, Barca. So it's a bit less than what we've seen in the past, but they're still following very much a pattern. Oh, I'm, I've obviously missed the uh, the obvious, the, the big name to come in, World Cup winner, Marcel Desailly, uh, really uh, basically recreating the international partnership that he would sometimes have with uh, Frank Leboeuf at the back. Yeah, and Desailly was interesting, wasn't it? Because he, was he was the best six in the world, and then he was the best centre-half in the world after that. Like, he's one of those ones that he's got a brilliant career as a midfield player at, at Milan and then he goes to Chelsea and is an absolutely dominant centre-half so but yeah I mean what a what a brilliant footballer absolute beast rock you know yeah. and even then I mean he, he, he must have been up there in age when he signed oh yeah would have thought I mean yes. bearing in mind that he won a, a European Cup with Marseille yeah. in like 1990 so I mean like so he's won the European Cup with Marseille He's won the European Cup of Milan. Um, he's won the World Cup with France. And then he goes to Chelsea. <laughs> and yet yeah. still, you know, puts in a real shift. Yeah, he still has two or three good years, doesn't he? So he's, he's 30 when he goes to Chelsea or, or shortly after he arrives. So they actually lose the opening game that day. Coventry City on one of their good years. Uh, Huckabee and Dublin score for them. <laughs> and Poyet pulls one back. Uh, yeah, I mean, Huckabee in Dublin for Coventry, and that, that takes you back in itself, doesn't it? Um, but then they don't lose again for the rest of 1998. I think uh, if you look through the thing, there's draw with Newcastle, draw with Arsenal, uh, win three on, on the chart, including a really good game uh, with Blackburn. But they win 4-3. Draw with Liverpool, a couple of wins, a couple of wins. They draw with, draw with Man United. So they're beating the teams that you'd expect them to beat and then drawing with like the teams around them. That's a pretty good record for success. Eventually they do lose one nil to Arsenal. Um, but I mean, long story short, this is, this is a title challenge form. And after 20 odd games, they are top of the league. At this point, we start to think that, you know, Chelsea might be for real. You know, it's a long time since they've really lost. Um, and you can write off opening day kind of jitters, new side kind of gelling. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, 
were people starting to buy into the idea of Chelsea? Or are you still kind of thinking hmm, Man United, Arsenal, these sides have proven themselves? Well, I, I guess that, that those two Arsenal, that those two sides, Wenger, Arsenal, and Fergie United in 98-99, you know, they were above and beyond everybody else, you know, and, and, and you'd have to say that Chelsea and um and Liverpool were, were were pretty far distant from that level still at that point. But you had to take them seriously because they had established themselves now as a proper top five side. And if they hadn't drawn so many games, I mean they draw a ludicrous amount of games in this season, then then they could have pushed I mean this is I guess it's the treble winning season for United, isn't it? So they they could have pushed a lot harder. But they, you know, they draw a lot and not always the teams that you think you should draw with. You've got to draw against Derby. Can't imagine that was a great Derby team. You know, they draw to Borough, draw to Wednesday. So they got some slightly, you know, draw to Blackburn. And that was a really poor season for Blackburn, if I remember. So um, they kind of lacked the killer instincts that United and Arsenal had from such long periods of success. There's actually a picture of me somewhere. With Arsenal one, Chelsea nil, written in sand on this beautiful secluded beach. <laughs> it's uh, I spent six months out of the country after after college uh, that that time, and I was on this beach. Uh, I'd watched a game in this like tiny island, uh, which is yeah belongs to Mauritius, but there's like these islands off it. So I did a boat tour there with my brother. We both watched the game the last night. I mean, just a big Arsenal and Chelsea nil in the sand and took a picture. Good times. <laughs> so just to start back, I think it's those games in April, isn't it? Because in the end, they only lose the league by four points. Uh, you know, Man United finished with 79, Arsenal finished with 78, Chelsea have 75. So yeah, it really is quite a close run thing between all of the top three, but Three draws in a row in that April probably hands the initiative to the other two sides, and they are Middlesbrough, Leicester, and Sheffield Wednesday, uh, none of whom are elite sides at this point. There is also another draw coming to Tottenham, but I think the damage is probably done by then because Chelsea do win the rest of their last four. But yeah, it's it's a notable kind of statement of, of intent, really, isn't it? Uh, the goal difference really probably tells the, the difference in quality between the other sides more than... The point tally, plus 43, plus 42, and plus 27, there's quite a big drop-off there. But even so, you're kind of looking at Chelsea as a side that, well, they push damn close, closer than most third-place teams managed to do in the Premier League era. And I guess I was looking at what would happen the following season, you know, if they could carry on that kind of momentum, you know, could they keep pushing? So whenever a side gets to that point, what is the first thing you look at? It's, for me anyway, what's the transfer business? You know, can you kick on? And they really do kind of go for it on the back of that third place. And uh, it's not as disastrous as it would be for some other clubs. But uh, let's see, who do they bring in? Uh, Didier Deschamps, another obviously World Cup winner with that France team. Uh, Chris Sutton comes in from a, a declining Blackburn Rovers for 10 million, which is twice what Blackburn had paid for him in 1995. Well, yeah, uh, that's the problem, though, isn't it? Sutton flops completely. Like, yeah. that's that's the big story of that season is that they spend the money on on Sutton. Deschamps as well is a little bit washed at this point, and you know they do they do take a step backwards. You've got to wonder how much that hurts them, doesn't it? In back to back years, having Casa, Casaragi, obviously 
not be the guy they thought they were buying and a, a bad injury did he did his career not he, he retired yeah. yeah i mean he literally yeah. i mean yeah. I, if, if he had that injury today it'd probably be all right but um at the time yeah. that was a career ender. i mean yeah he didn't have the best of starts and then it was bang out before he could really get going and then i don't take any joy in sutton failing yes i do i take lots of joy in <laughs> sutton being an absolute flop so when you've signed like big name number nines you know that close together and neither of them work that that's that's gonna hurt a lot uh, and bear in mind as well that obviously you had the o'leary Leeds side who really kick on so they'd finished fourth the season before and this is where they make their big push and make the champions league and of course champions league places are now for third places and uh, Leeds sneak in there ahead of liverpool and of course liverpool now under julia are starting to get their act together as well so this is the problem with the premier league is that when you are an up-and-coming side like this you have to keep replicating it and it's really difficult you know i mean when we look at some of these other teams like ones we've looked at and ones we're going to look at you know Moyes Everton Redknapp Spurs I mean Pochettino Spurs actually um you know when you look at those sorts of teams Villa under O'Neill if you don't strengthen the right way and kick on after you've got that foothold other teams will catch up to you and that's what happened to them yeah, just uh, on Kasiragi quickly, I think, because I know he's a real blow. You look at some of those games back and some of those things that kind of happen are so unlucky that, you know, he hadn't hit three or four already. You know, it's not like he was playing badly. In fact, he was creating goals for other people left, right and centre because uh, he had a, a good work ethic. But, yeah, he goes down and that is a major blow. And losing a player that you've invested quite a lot of uh, hope in is always going to knock aside. So they do really well to come back that season and finish third when you've lost uh, someone like that. But you do see a big drop off in the goals the following season. So Zola goes from having one of his career best seasons to not hitting double figures. The flow, I think, is the top scorer. Poyat's still getting loads of goals. But all of a sudden, there's you're looking at a couple of sources for goals because Viali is getting quite old by this point. He's probably purely a manager now rather than a player manager. That array of players that could contribute is getting smaller, or at least getting smaller in terms of uh, hitting the net. So not only are Leeds passing them, but also Liverpool are starting to see their you know side come together under Julio. Uh, it's not a terminal decline. They're not going backwards en masse, but this is happening at the same time that Chelsea are having to play their Champions League campaign, uh, which puts extra demands on the squad as well. So, it's it starts to add up. It's still a good season, fifth, back down from from third, uh, 65 points rather than 75. So it's it's kind of gone backwards a bit, but it's not terrible. Uh, it's a good second half of the season. They find themselves about midway after they played everybody once, but they do get up to as high as third at one point before settling down. But yeah, this is a side that has to settle really for the. For the FA Cup and a, a solid performance in the league, because I think when it comes to like names like Deschamps and Sutton, by this point they were buying names for the sake of buying names. I don't think they bought Sutton in particular with any idea of how he was actually going to fit in with the rest of that side. No, and he scored he scored less goals in more games than John Harley that season in the Premier League. Uh, that's glorious. And I think the thing with Sutton is that he'd obviously played in teams, aside from when he played with Shearer, 
you know, he was the main man for Norwich. He was the main man for Blackburn after Shearer left. And, you know, when he went to Celtic, he was the main man. And I just, I think he kind of got a bit, he got a bit lost at Chelsea. And as you say, they didn't play to his strengths particularly. You know, their their game really under Viali was get the ball to Zola. Zola would find a clever pass, either out wide or slip a pass through to Flo or whoever was playing up front or, or Poye running on. And they weren't really suited to either really to players like Kasaragi or to players like uh, like Chris Sutton, you know, who, you know, favoured lots of crosses into the box. And that wasn't really what Chelsea were doing. So, yeah, it it was a bit scattershot. It, but there was a bit of a tendency to do this in the Premier League at the time. It was like there's a marquee player available. Who's going to get him? And you used to see that quite a lot, right? You know, Blackburner struggling the vulture circle who's going to get chris sutton and, and because i guess the being on the clubs is someone's got to get him otherwise you know what if we miss out and, yeah. and that was kind of what chelsea you know ended up doing but um i think it also started to become a little bit clear as viali's reign went on that he he wasn't much of a tactico you know he, he was very much vibes and it's quite interesting to see that you know when mancini won the euros last year he brought Viali on specifically as his vibes man. <laughs> you know, having having played up front with him for Sampdoria for all those years, it, it was like he recognised there was something up Viali's personality that he needed because, of course, Mancini is very intense uh, and driven, and Viali was the joker, and therefore, you know, he added balance to that Italian dressing room and that really successful, uh, you know, runs the Euros. So. Yeah, I do think at a certain point, Viali got a little bit found out. Um, and it's interesting that their next appointment is Ranieri, who is much more of your caricature of an Italian manager. And it kind of says what direction the club were kind of looking to go in. Well, just to uh, to wrap this up, then we'll fill in the gap between those two uh, appointments, because there isn't a lot left to say particularly Chelsea do add another FA Cup that season as I mentioned not going to spend long on it because it's against my team and it's one of the most boring finals anyone's ever had the misfortune to sit through Uh, but it's Di Matteo with his knack of scoring in Wembley finals coming up with the goods again Uh, it's the the last final at the old Wembley Uh, just a shame it wasn't a better game but they come back from that kind of slightly disappointing season but they end it on a high and they come back and there's another round of players coming in. Uh, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, who've done well at Leeds, is brought in from Atletico Madrid. And if you believe what you read, then he kind of always wanted to go to Chelsea all along, but Leeds were completely unwilling to sell him to another Premier League side. So that's what the season in Spain had to do. Ida Johnson comes in from Bolton and Mario Stanich comes from Parma. And Carlo Cudicini comes in as a goalkeeper on a free. There's also uh, Winston Bahadi there, but we'll gloss over that because he doesn't do anything. Yeah, so they start the season and they win the Charity Shield. So they've got this, these new players coming in. Hasselbank scores there. They beat Man United. And then they go to the opening game of the Premier League. They host West Ham and they score four goals. Stanich scores twice. I can remember one of them being a really good goal. And all of a sudden, there's like real optimism. You know, have they bought well? All that stuff is going to come in back. You know, can they push on? And then six or seven games later, it's over. Uh, I don't think they win again in Viali's tenure. And several games later, it's done. Uh, he sacked, as you say, Ranieri comes in. And that really kind of ends this little mini era because Ranieri never has the same 
buzz around his side that the Hullet and Viali sides had. I don't know if it's just because we were getting used to it or because they weren't as entertaining as they had been in the late 1990s, or at least until all the money comes in. Uh, maybe it's because there aren't any trophies to speak of until uh, Mourinho comes in. I mean, I don't know what the reason is, but it does seem like something ends at that point. I mean, I, do you guys have any thoughts on yeah, I was going to say that they're a bit more workmanlike, the players, aren't they? They're not quite all flair. They're a bit more work-hard type players rather than absolutely set, set the world on fire. You know, guys like, I guess, uh, Gronkia. You know, good players. Good players, not bad players. But not quite the the box office that, that, that the ones who came before were. I think Renier is really unfairly remembered actually I think he does a really good job there and a really good job in the season where they've got the money and they give him one more year and you know even though he does all right they still sack him at I think he comes second and they sack it it's the invincible season isn't it and they they sack him at the end of that season um now I I I personally feel that 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 Ranieri uh, does really really well at Chelsea um those players that you mentioned there actually Pete the ones that that come in all end up being real important Ranieri players, don't they? Hasselbank scores, you know, tons of goals. He's a fan favourite at Chelsea to this day. Johnson, what a good player he was for them. I, I guess are we in are we in Mario Melchior te- territory as well? Yeah, he's already at this point. Yeah. yeah, so so all those kind of players you associate with Ranieri. And as Matt says, right, it's not like getting a Viali who was legitimately one of the best number nines in the world for you know for ten years at his peak. It's not like getting Ruud Hullet, who was legitimately the best player in the world, not named Diego Maradona. But what this combined period of Hullet, Viali, Ranieri does, is it, even if, right, if we go into a what-if game and Abramovich never buys Chelsea, they, for me, they stay a big club and they would have stayed a big club. And, you know, eventually they'd have won a title, I think, um, because the momentum was there and they were building and they had the profile to attract players. So I still think they end up being a big club, maybe not you know, to the kind of level of disruptor that they became, you know, with the Abramovich money and with Mourinho. Um, so, I mean, what, yeah. What, yeah, I was going to say what, what, what I think um, is really important in that Ranieri era is, you know, he is bringing through that next generation. This is where... Terry starts to really gather momentum and you know you start to see him become key to Chelsea as he would be for the next god knows however many years you know he signs um he signs Lampard from from West Ham mm. you know the, the he signs Gallas you know I don't I don't think you can underestimate how good Gallas was you know <laughs> again Arsenal fan and uh, Spurs fan talking here you know <laughs> you, you you can quickly forget how good William Gallas was uh, when he played for Chelsea you know him and Terry together were, were, were fantastic so he is he is building the, the spine of, of that Mourinho team like uh, Neil was saying you, you've got guys like Hasselbank who are doing really well and you know banging in goals you know so it's not like they've gone flying down the table or anything no. you know they're there. They're just not quite as as hot as they were at one point in that. You know, they're regrouping. 
they're regrouping to come back with a bit more money, a new manager, uh, and to have a proper go at it. Yeah, they're just recovering from, as I say, Leeds being artificially inflated by all the Gridsdale era spending and Newcastle being back to a good side in the couple of years there where Bobby Robson got them flying as well. Uh, yeah, it's worth uh, remembering that although they didn't have the kind of buzz under Ranieri that they did have under the the superstar managers, there was still a lot of important groundwork laid and some really important players being brought in. And uh, although it never delivered a trophy, it did turn them from a side that finished sixth in that season that he took over from Viali and he left them in second place. Uh, yes, with significant spending of uh, Russian millions that um, uh, we've mentioned on other episodes in the past, you know, buy players so that other people can't have them and stockpile them seem to be some of it. But at the same time, uh, you can still put 11 on the pitch and, you know, they were, they were actually pretty good at the end of the Ranieri era, I thought. I was uh, I was quite sad when he didn't get the chance to try and kick on from that. But obviously, with what happened in the 2004-05 and season and beyond, the right call in, in hindsight. Um, all right, any final thoughts on this side? Anything that anyone wants to mention that we haven't touched on so far? I guess just that it is one of those 90s teams that that we all remember. And, you know, probably season... I don't know what season we're on now. Is it four? <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah but uh, in some ways, it's a bit strange that we've, we've, we've left it until season four to get to them because they are, you know, an iconic 90s team, I think. It's the Premier League era for me at its absolute best and, you know, the most fun to watch. And, you know, at one point, at this point, really, they were a huge, huge part of that and so much glamour going on just to see see these guys come through and you know the guy you have to tip your hat to more than anyone else in that time is Zola who is you know undoubtedly one of the great Premier League signings and most talented players to brighten up the league and one of the greatest takers of free kicks during this era as well I think we have to add that you know whenever I think of Great strikers of the ball. You always think of uh, Zola and a free kicks, and I also think of Frank LeBeouf taking penalties and smashing them in uh, with that ridiculous long run that he went on. Uh, I think they were real drivers of change in the Premier League. There's there's a handful of clubs that you really look at and say, yeah, they were pushing things forward. And this era, Chelsea moved the league from a rebranded version of the old First Division to the Premier League as we now kind of understand it. And a lot of that was their ambition to go out and bring some of these international stars into our league. And uh, yeah, for the drama that gave us, I think, although an Arsenal and a Tottenham fan will never like Chelsea, I think you always kind of have to tip your hat to, to that to some degree. All right, we can leave that one there. Uh, next time we are back and we are looking at a side we've mentioned a couple of times in this episode, which is the 94-95 Blackburn Rovers. Uh, I can tell how Maz is going to feel about it already. <coughs> oh, I'm... I'm... I feel like I'm coming down with something. <laughs> get your get your Stuart Ripley takes, Rezzy. Uh, yeah. I'm 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 going to take a long run up on this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. We'll, we'll see you again next week.